Monday through Friday, Walters opens at noon for lunch, midday baseball watching, and even the occasional European soccer match. So if you find yourself around the ballpark during the day, make sure you walk on over to Walters. Walters is the perfect place to watch the Nats and NBA playoffs with friends. If the weather's good, check out the patio. If it's raining, there's plenty of room inside. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here it is. Swing a chopper left side. Fair ball down the line. Two runs score. Herrera, a wide turn at first, will head back to first. And the Phillies have scored a touchdown in the bottom of the fourth. A bounding ball, two-run single up the third baseline. Perfectly placed with Castro off the line. And it's now a 7-3 Phillies lead. The 2-1. Swinging a high, high drive to right field deep. Soto back to the track, feeling for the wall, and there it goes. Opposite field, three-run homer, JT Riomito, and it's 12-6 Phillies. Just as soon as the Nationals are back in it, they're not. Home run number five for Real Muto. Opposite field, three-run blast. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, June 7th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, I do believe that it has been accomplished. Every last Major League Baseball fan under the age of 30 has now been extinguished by means of what happened at the sit on Sunday afternoon, a 12-6 nine-inning game between the Nationals and the Phillies that took four hours, 26 minutes, featured a seven-run Phillies bottom of the fourth that lasted for about 40 minutes, featured the two teams combining to use 13 pitchers, and included delays for an injured home plate umpire and the protective netting falling. If you wanted to put people to sleep, if you wanted to drive people away, this is how you do it. Great job, baseball. And, uh, oh, by the way, another loss for the Nationals, another series loss for the Nationals. Rob Manfred, call your office come Monday. Hello, Mark. How are you? Hello, Al. Yeah, you got your bullpen game. Wasn't that exciting? <laughs> let's let's do the Tampa Bay Rays. Let's just throw as many relievers as we can out there. It'll be great. Awful. It was awful. The game was as bad of a watch as you're going to get. Although, by the way, speaking of the bullpen game, you pressured Davey Martinez in his pregame Zoom press conference about Brad Hand. I noticed that, and I was proud of you for doing that. Of course, the Nationals didn't end up doing it. Mark Zuckerman, MassInSports.com. I'm just curious, as you were mapping out your potential pitching plan for today, did the idea of using an opener just for the first inning, is that something you, you thought at all, especially because they've got a couple lefties near the top of their lineup? Yeah, we, we, we definitely thought about that. No, Brad Hand was like the only guy who didn't even pitch in this game. You know, we got to the end of it, and he was explaining his reasoning. 
for going with Austin Voth. I thought, eh, let me, he's in a good mood. Let me see if I just throw this out there. And uh, he was having none of it. Although he said they did, as they were mapping this all out, they thought about the idea of an opener, but he mentioned Sam Clay and Wander Suero. He did not mention Brad Hand, and I wasn't going to go there and press that issue with him. Clearly, that was not in his mind at all. I'm not sure it would have helped. I mean, the sad thing about all this, there's a lot of sad things from this game, but to me, the saddest thing is Voth was great. It was set up to maybe work. I mean, who knows how it would have all played out, but he retired all six batters he faced. He looked really good. And then that really unfortunate incident where he gets hit in the face with a pitch and he broke his nose. 3-1, and that one, look out. It, it, did it hit Voth in the face? I think it, it knocked his helmet off. And Voth is down holding his left eye. It just kind of threw everything out of whack, and the, the rest of the game was a complete train wreck. Yeah, you mentioned Sam Clay. He may no longer be on the ball club come Monday. We'll see what ends up happening with that. For once, though, we're going to start with the Nats pitching because the hitting was actually halfway decent on Sunday. That's actually one of the shames of the game is that the offense was awake and uh, the Nats ended up giving up 12 runs. So this is the way it goes when you're a bad team. You know, when you hit, you don't pitch. When you pitch, you don't hit. So the Nats go with this oh-so-rare bullpen approach to the game. Like Mark said, Austin Voth started the game and was doing really well. You know, it would have been interesting to see how long he would have lasted for. I mean, I'm not saying he would have gone eight innings, but I don't know, three, four innings maybe. Two perfect innings with a couple of strikeouts. Then he has to leave the game off getting hit by a pitch from the Philly starter, Vince Velasquez, top of the third. Uh, Voth in attempting to bunt on a 3-1 pitch, taking a 90.5 mile per hour four-seam fastball off his batting helmet and face. And Davey told you guys after the game, right, Voth suffered a broken nose. Yeah, broken nose. He's going to have to spend the night in Philadelphia and have it reset. So, you know, obviously not great. Now, that could have been a lot worse, I suppose. And as far as we know, we didn't break any other bones in the face. There's a lot of potential for stuff there. Maybe that slight little deflection off the brim of his helmet, you know, absorbed some of the blow. I mean, it was still, it was ugly. He was bleeding right away. You saw Davey burst out the dugout. Paul Assard, the trainer, immediately get a towel on his face. That's kind of the nightmare. That and then the comebacker line drive to the pitcher. Those are the two nightmares in baseball right now. Hopefully, it's nothing worse than that. We saw Max Scherzer break his nose in a very different manner a couple of years ago, fouling off a bunt attempt during BP. He came back, of course, and pitched the next day, but he's Max Scherzer. So we'll see. It'll be a few days till we see Voth and know what is next for him. You hope everything is fine. No other significant damage. But not to go off the rails on a game that did go off the rails, But Davey used that as a a means of bringing up an issue that is becoming a big deal in baseball, and that is the sticky stuff that pitchers are using and the MLB appears to be cracking down on. And he didn't say it was necessarily caused this particular incident, but he is worried that if MLB cracks down completely on pitchers being allowed to use whatever stuff they're using to get a grip on the ball, that that could lead to more of these things. And that's always been the fear. I've heard it from many hitters over the years, too. They're okay with pitchers using pine tar and stuff if it's just to get a grip because they don't want 98 mile an hour fastballs going at their head. And Vince Velasquez was all over the place in this game. So it wasn't a shock that that pitch, that wasn't one errant pitch. He had a lot of them. Now, this is a complicated issue for baseball to sort out. It's not just about getting a grip. It's about increasing spin rights, about making the ball move in weird ways. It's not a simple solution, but I thought it was interesting that Davey brought that up in regards to the Voth hit by pitch and how this attempt by baseball could maybe lead to more of these situations. 
Yeah, so a few things. So first of all, Velasquez is all over the place. He came into the game with a walk rate of 5.7 walks per nine innings, which is atrocious. Okay, The guy can't find the plate to save his life. If you watch the game, you saw Velasquez staring intently at both after what happened happened. He clearly felt bad. He was you know, all over the map. He hit Victor Robles with a pitch. The other thing, though, with the sticky substance stuff, this is one of these classic gray area, highly complicated issues with baseball where it's illegal to use a foreign substance, but it's been okay for years to use a foreign substance because everyone kind of recognizes you need to use a foreign substance in order to maintain control. But if you go too far with the foreign substance, you can doctor things like you just outlined, you know, the spin rate, you can impact how you pitch the ball. So, you know, it's not unlike the PED thing where, well, you know, we'll look the other way, but okay, now we don't want to use too much of it. You know, baseball's got to get its act together on this stuff. You either can use it or you can't. And if you want people to use it to a certain extent, they got to come up with some sort of uniform substance that everyone's allowed to use, is readily available to pitchers, and stop with this, you know, winking and nodding at this thing. Because I think Davey's right. Like, there is this fear of guys will be throwing pitches all over the map because they can't control pitches. But at the same time, there are clearly people using this to their advantage right now. And it has become a big issue. And I also would say this, and not to derail us even further, but this is another reason why I don't think pitchers should bat. These guys are subject to injury. You know, nobody's going to care because it's Austin Voth. But if that's Steven Strasburg or that's Patrick Corbin or that is Max Scherzer, even though I know he came back from his instance again, hit by pitch a few years ago, that's a big deal that a guy making hundreds of millions of dollars has to miss time because some doofus throwing the baseball couldn't control it and hits the guy in the face and the guy and the pitcher breaks his nose. Like, that's not what the game is for. That's not what the game needs. So this, to me, is further ammunition for the universal DH. But again, that's another conversation. Well, all right. But if it's the DH, he could get hit in the face. That's just as bad. I mean, anybody can get hit in the face. It's not unique to a pitcher batting. No, but pitchers are not used to batting. And you would think, in theory, a DH will be more adept at protecting himself. Maybe you can't avoid it. Sometimes you can. I mean, I'll concede that. But especially when you have guys who aren't used to hitting, and it's not like Voth is used to hitting a ton, I think these guys get put in uncomfortable spots. I mean, you tell me, how often do pitchers practice batting? Does it happen that often? I mean, I've heard it said that some pitchers don't even practice batting. They don't, you know, they don't care about it. I think they get put in really bad positions like this. They probably don't do it as much as they should or as much as they used to. They do always, the day that a guy is starting game, he will take a round of VP in the cage. A lot of times they have an early, at least bunting session with pitchers as a group. But now, yes, in Austin Vogt's case, because he has been a reliever all this year, so he's not used to batting. He has been a starter his whole life, so it's not totally foreign to him. So I get what you're saying. We're talking about one incident here. I think I don't think it mattered who was batting in that particular situation. They were going to get hit in the face with it. But sure, there may be times that a pitcher is less adept at getting out of the way than a, a regular hitter. Yeah, and we've seen pitchers, too, get hurt, like running the bases. Masahiro Tanaka got hurt running the bases, Dylan Bundy, et cetera. But anyway, that's another issue. So both look good. That's the shame of it. He looked good. He ends up having to leave the game. Wander Suero comes in, and he looks good. Perfect bottom of the third. We're off and running. We're doing nicely with this bullpen approach. The Tampa Bay Rays are red with envy watching the Washington Nationals on this Sunday. And then comes the Sam Clay, Kyle Finnegan, Paolo Espino, Tanner Rainey experience. Those four guys combined to allow 12 runs, eight earned in three innings, and nothing was worse than that Phillies seven-run bottom of the fourth, a painful inning, a brutally long inning, an inning in which the Phillies scored in every way possible except the extra base hit. This was something else. Clay is a mess right now, Mark, and Finnegan had issues, and our guy Paolo had issues as well. 
And we haven't even gotten to Tanner Rainey later in the no. game who has gotten his issues. I try not to be hyperbolic here, but that might be the worst half inning in baseball I've ever seen. <laughs> okay. At the big league level, just because of, I've never seen seven runs score without anybody hitting the ball hard. There was one batted ball in the inning that had an exit velocity over 90, and that was an out. It was a ground out. Everything else, a little infield single, a ball to where the infield should have been, but it was shifted out of the way. The walks, the strikeout, ball gets away and the runner scores. The pop-up that Jordy Mercer drops. I raised the question on that one. Like I was waiting for the umpire to signal infield fly, and I guess he didn't because it technically was not a routine play. didn't have time to camp under it, but... If you're going to give him an air on it, then it, isn't that a routine play? So I, I don't know. I thought that was bizarre. And then the fielder's choice, the ground ball to Starlin Castro, that he can't decide where to throw it. He throws the second late. That was a complete disaster of an inning. And I don't think I've ever seen an inning like that where seven runs score without really anything being hit hard. And we'll tie this in maybe when we get to the Nats offense in this game. But Davey made the point afterwards, too. Look at the Phillies. They just put the bat on the ball. They didn't hit it hard, and they scored seven runs. Now look at the Nats with the bases loaded. They're trying to hit grand slams, and they end up striking out. Sometimes just getting the bat on the ball is enough, and the Phillies did it that inning. Yeah, they did. Seven runs on three singles, four walks, one of which was allowed by Espino. The error by Mercer, a fielder's choice, and a strikeout wild pitch. It, it, it was the inning that refused to end. It was the inning from hell in so many ways. It just would not die and the Nats kept giving up runs, and you really felt like, I know I felt like, like, okay, ball game over. To the Nats' credit, they did battle back. The boys did battle. They scored some runs, but ultimately, uh, the bullpen really just ends up being wretched in this game. There's no other way to say it. Uh, by the way, with Sam Clay now, he's allowed six runs in three innings on nine hits and three walks over his last six appearances. He struggled in the game on Saturday. He struggles in the game on Sunday. I get that the Nats aren't exactly oozing with options right now, but I don't know if they can keep going to him. I mean, he just looks like he's a a complete wreck these days. He had a really bad weekend, especially. And, you know, we were talking about the possibility of an opener because the Phillies had uh, lefties, two of their first three batters. And Davey mentioned Sam Clay at, at one point was a thought of his. Well, he didn't retire any of the three hitters on Saturday. And I think that may have played a role in that decision. How are you going to start the game with him when he does that? And then comes back and essentially does the same thing on Sunday. So uh, not good. If you're going to be a lefty in the big leagues, you have to be able to get lefty hitters out. You certainly can't be giving up free passes, which is what he and then uh, Finnegan did. You're right. They're not crawling with great pitching prospects waiting to be called upon. But one of the reasons that they went out and got guys like Sam Clay and Kyle Finnegan who, let's remember, they were career minor leaguers, no big league experience, and they were given major league contracts, put on the 40-man roster. And part of the reason for that is because this has been an issue for the Nats in recent years. They haven't had a lot of relievers with options who could be sent down. So just whether it's ineffectiveness or overuse and, hey, we need to make a move, we need to bring a fresh arm in, they haven't had a lot of guys they could do that with. Clay and Finnegan do have the options. So perhaps this would be an opportunity just to send them down, give them a break, and get somebody else up who can come in and be available for a few days. Uh, you know, We'll see what happens, but certainly not getting the job done right now. No, it's batting practice right now. And uh, our guy, Paolo Espino, he apparently is mortal because he struggled in this game, gave up two more runs in the bottom of the fifth, one-out double by Andrew McCutcheon on what was nearly a home run, and then came a home run, a one-out two-run bomb by Brad Miller on a one-two pitch. And then Tanner Rainey. And, you know, Mark, we've tried to find positives with Tanner Rainey. He was so good last season. I was so optimistic about him coming into this season. I know he dealt with the injury in spring training, 
But another bad outing for Rainey on Sunday. Three runs in the bottom of the sixth. Leadoff hit by pitch of Nick Maton on a 1-2 pitch. Double by Oduble Herrera. Three-run homer by JT Real Muto. Tanner Rainey on the season has been brutal. You know, you could argue he's been the single worst reliever for the Nationals on the season. The ERA will certainly tell you that he has been. 10.57 is the Tanner Rainey ERA. Yes, 10.57. He has 18 earned runs in 15 and a third innings. That is awful. And that's in 20 appearances. So we're not talking about somebody who, you know, it's only ah, just a week worth of, uh, of bad appearances, something like that. No, this is somebody who has been gone to multiple times. And look, there were maybe reasons early on to find some excuses. He, he was dealing with an injury in spring training. They want to give him some time, let him get his fastball back. The velocity is there. He's throwing 98. Then he ends up on the COVID IL, even though he didn't get COVID, but he was a close contact uh, because of Eric Fetty. So he has to miss time with that. Well, he's been back long enough now. There's really no excuse for that either. And I hate to make the comparison to arguably the worst reliever in Nationals history, oh, no. Trevor Rosenthal. Oh, my God, no. And he's not. He's not there. Okay, hang on. Trevor Rosenthal, I'm looking it up right now, had a 22.74 ERA in 12 games, a 3.632 whip, which is absolutely awful. 21.3 walks per nine innings for Tanner Rainey. Or, I'm sorry, for, for Trevor Rosenthal. The difference here is that Rainey's getting hit, you know, He's not getting beat with walks that much. He's getting hit, and he's getting hit hard, and something's got to change. You can't keep going to the same well and expect that it's suddenly going to be different. So that is another move they're going to have to consider making at some point. Yeah, he was really good for them a couple of years ago, and there's there's a lot of potential still in there, but he is a guy who has a really hard time commanding his stuff. And by I say that, it's not just throwing strikes, but throwing quality strikes, and Stuff only gets you so far in the big leagues. You have to actually be able to throw it where you want to and get hitters out. Just the mere invoking of the name Trevor Rosenthal gives everyone listening to the Nats Chat Pod right now the heebie-jeebies. Trevor Rosenthal, who infamously had an ERA of infinity for the longest time just a few years ago. That might have been unfair of me. (laughs) Same initials, too, of Tanner Rainey, TR. Something about (laughs) that, too, we got to wonder about, but... Yeah, it's rough right now with Tanner Rainey. We can end with a bright spot here. Kyle McGowan. I I love what we're seeing from Kyle McGowan. All he does is what is asked of him. Two scoreless innings, five strikeouts on Sunday, lowering the ERA to 235. He's got a whip of 0.91. So it's a small consolation. But Kyle McGowan had himself a nice weekend. Maybe it's time for the McGowan-Espino setup double duties, right? Are we ready for that yet? Look, again, it's usually low leverage spots, so it's hard to read too much into it. But you need guys like this who can give you quality innings in a game that may be getting out of hand, or maybe they're trailing by a few runs, but it, it keeps you in it. That wasn't quite the case here on Sunday. But no, I've liked what he's shown. I mean, he his slider is for real. And I mean, he throws it a ton. And if he doesn't have it, that's kind of his, his only method of, of attack. But when he throws it where he wants to, it can be pretty effective. And I'm interested to see in the long run what might become of it. As a guy who was a failed starter and became a reliever full-time, found that one pitch that works for him. And hey, he may have a career you know, because of it. But the state of things is is not real good right now, I think, as we've discussed. And a bullpen that was looking like a bright spot there for a while is not so much looking like a bright spot anymore. And, you know, yeah, they've been worked a lot. Maybe that's some of it. And if you're getting more innings out of your starters, it allows everyone to be in a better position. But I think we are getting to a point here where Davey's got to not necessarily just consider 
these guys for their roles based on their track record or what they're supposed to be, but at some point start using them based on how they're actually performing. And that's where some of these lesser names might have earned the right to pitch in higher leverage spots over guys who supposedly have a track record and have earned the right to pitch in those spots, but aren't really deserving of it right now. Yeah. I mean, we are fast approaching into the territory of what do you have to lose exactly? Okay. Like what would be so bad about giving Kyle McGowan more high leverage appearances? I mean, you know, you're not doing well. You're not a good team. You're having a bad season and you're bad in a lot of different areas. You know, their bullpen ERA, which is pretty good for a while now, is right around four. The bullpen has come back down to earth big time over these last few weeks. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, so we have all had that dream. Tie game, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded. Well, on FanDuel Sportsbook, you get more than just one shot to swing for the fences. That's because FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free. You heard that right. New users get up to $1,000 back inside credit if your first bet doesn't win And it only gets better from there. Once you have an account, you'll have access to same-game parlay insurance all season long. That's up to $25 back in side credit each day if your same-game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way, you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. It's got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same-game parlay and always-on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. All you have to do is download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT to get in on the action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook Promo code chat and games on Monday include Miami at Boston at 510. Good pitching matchup. Pablo Lopez with a 282 ERA facing the former Nationals prospect Nick Pavetta, who's actually having a nice season, 377 ERA. How about we go with the Red Sox? 
21 plus and present in Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager, only for risk-free bet. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fandle.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia. Tennessee, 1-800-889-9789, or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. I mentioned one of the shames of the game being that the Nationals' offense for once actually had a pulse. The Nats, off having totaled five runs over the previous games, scored six runs on Sunday. Nats finished with a double-digit total of hits, 10. Okay, so just barely double digits, but you got to double digits. Ten hits to go with three walks. Nats went four for 11 with runners in scoring position. But because the Nats lost, you focus on some of the things that did not go so well offensively. And one of the things that stood out big time on Sunday and really stood out throughout the weekend was Kyle Schwarber. Now, Schwarber, to his credit, fought through this right knee situation, only ended up missing one game. He ended up being the Nats starting left fielder in all three games in this series. I give him credit for that, all right? You know, Schwarber's tough as nails. We saw that in 2016 with him playing in the World Series off suffering the torn ACL the previous April. So you never question Kyle Schwarber's toughness. But here's the bottom line. Kyle Schwarber in this series went 0 for 12 with a walk and four strikeouts. Kyle Schwarber on Sunday as the Nationals cleanup batter, 0 for 5 with two strikeouts. He left six men on base. He struck out on six pitches with the bases loaded, one out, and what ended up being a mere one run, third inning for the Nats, who continue to lead the planet in innings that should be three, four, five, six run innings, only end up being one run innings. We had another instance of this in the third inning on Sunday. Schwarber had been doing better. I don't know if the right knee is the reason for the bad weekend, but I do wonder if maybe he shouldn't have been playing this weekend, given that, again, he went 0 for 12 with a walk in 4Ks in the series. Yeah, not good. I mean, I didn't see any obvious signs to my untrained eye of him at the plate. You did notice uh, one of the games when he was running the bases looked a little off, and you saw Davey replace him with uh, Andrew Stevenson for defense late. So, you know, I don't know, but he had a bad weekend. He had a bad game. But I want to talk about that whole three, four, five group together. Bell, Schwarber, Castro. And I know you said it was a good offensive day for the team, and I get it. It's better than what they have been doing. It could have been so much better. And the entire tenor of the game could have been completely different if that top of the third goes differently. So they get, at, this is after the, the back-to-back hit by pitches, Robles and Voth, who goes down. Joe Ross pinch runs for him, by the way. Turner singles, and now the bases are loaded, and you've got the big boys coming up. Two, three, four, five. Soto, nice job. Line drive, opposite field single. Ideally, you'd like him to drive in more than one, but you can't get greedy on that. Okay, you got the one run. Spaces are still loaded. Nobody out. And now, Bell strikes out swinging. Schwarber strikes out swinging. Castro pops up to first base. That right there, that three batter sequence is the national season in a nutshell to me. That is it. An opportunity to do something big at the plate with the big hitters supposedly up and they cannot come through, and and not just can't come through, but come through in a way that is so futile that you wonder how do they ever get a hit in one of these spots. And they now, as a team, with the bases loaded this season, are hitting 151, 8 for 53 as a team. Castro is 0 for 8 himself with the bases loaded. And it's clear what's going on, and I mentioned it earlier, they're trying too hard. They're putting pressure on themselves in these spots to hit the grand slam instead of just trying to hit a line drive somewhere and drive in a couple of runs. And 
I don't know how you break that, how you get out of that. I don't know if there's somebody else who's going to hit in those spots instead of them. We talked about this all year long, how there just aren't other options. But if these are professional, experienced big league hitters with some track records, if they can't deliver a quality and bat in those spots, what hope is there? There's not much. You use the phrase big boys. I mean, Soto's a big boy. Bell is coming around to being a big boy. Schwarber was not a big boy in this series. Castro is a prepubescent boy. Castro was the number five batter again on Sunday. I I am so over this, him in that number five spot. 0 for 5, he left five men on base. Starling Castro now on the year is batting 244. His on-base percentage now is below 300. You know, people talk about the Mendoza line for batting average is 200. I don't know what you call a 300 on-base percentage, but that's the equivalent of the Mendoza line for OBP. He's at 297 for the on-base percentage on the year, and he's slugging 311. I mean, it's atrocious. And that he bats in the number five spot, even in the number six spot, as was the case in games one and two in this series, it's enough, okay? I get that Castro has to be your everyday starting third baseman due to Carter Keeboom. I get it. Castro cannot be batting this high up. I mean, anybody at this point but him in the five spot, even the six spot, you know? And I know there aren't many options. I I recognize that. But this guy has been killing you throughout the season And, you know, the stuff about the back of the baseball card and the track record, you know, first of all, Castro's track record isn't nearly as good as people like to make it out to be, but he is destroying them this season, batting as high up in the order as he's continued to bat. And we saw this again in this series, starting Castro in the series went two for 12 with two singles and no walks. You know, he never draws walks. That's the other thing with Castro. At least if he drew walks, you could say, all right, he gets on base a little bit. He doesn't. All he does is hit singles. And unless he's Rod Carew and he's piling up the singles, he's not doing you much good. And by the way, he's had some defensive miscues lately, too. He's not exactly Brooks Robinson at third base either. It's been a rough couple of weeks for Starlin. <laughs> Let's just put it that yeah. way. And the problem is when you're in that spot, and, and we've noticed it with this team in particular, he's the guy who keeps coming up with runners in scoring position. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that's not the guy you want to have up. Now, I don't know who the guy is. Maybe it's Jan Gomes once he's healthy. Again, maybe Victor Robles can move up in the lineup a little bit. He had a couple of doubles in this game. I know he still doesn't have a home run, but maybe there are some signs of something. Not that he's been great, but maybe it's a, a time to give him a little bit more of a chance. I don't know. It's not good. And as we've been saying, outside of Turner and Soto, nobody else is really doing it consistently. And not that Turner and Soto have been that consistent. They've had some issues as well. But I, and again, I'm, you know, I don't want to pick on the lineup on a day when they scored enough runs to win a game, but there was a chance to put this game away early, and I think it might have changed the entire complexion of it if they had just delivered in that perfect golden opportunity of a third inning against Vince Velasquez, who looked awful on the mound for the Phillies. I do like that Davey had Turner 1, Soto 2. I, I do think that's the way to go. I, I think you just get your two best guys the most played appearances possible. I did like that on Sunday. I hope Davey sticks with that. Uh, Soto off a bad game two in the series was much better in game three on Sunday, two for four RBI, triple RBI, single in the walk. Uh, Josh Bell ended up having a pretty good series bell, uh, for the series four for 12 of the homer, a double, two singles and a walk. Uh, he on Sunday had a single and a walk, although he, he did fail, uh, in a big spot or two, uh, it was actually interesting. Ryan Zimmerman doesn't start at all in the series comes up in, t- in two spots as a pinch hitter over two with a couple of strikeouts, including that bad at bad. Uh, on Saturday, on which he was uh, up there with runners, first and second, two outs, ends up striking out on three pitches in a one-run eighth inning uh, for the Nats. But they did do some decent things offensively on Sunday, like we were just saying. You mentioned catcher, no Jan Gomes the entire series. 
Alex Avila ends up being the catcher for all three games in the series, and he does end up doing a good job. He was kind of a nice, sneaky, bright spot in this series. We talked about him throwing out runners trying to steal on the last installment of the pod. Uh, Avila, though, offensively wasn't that bad in this series. One for three with a single and a walk on Sunday. Two for eight with a double single, three walks in the series. He, he gives you a good plate appearance. You know, he had an extra base hit. I mean, I know the bar is low at catcher, and you're not expecting greatness from Alex Avila. And you know, it is telling that in this game, Vila was the number six batter. Uh, that's not supposed to be the case, but uh, he actually did a nice job in this series, I thought. Yeah, sometimes with those guys, the more you play, the better you get. You just need the reps. I remember it happened with Jan Gomes in 2019 when Kurt Suzuki got hurt in September. And all of a sudden, Gomes was catching something like 10 days in a row, something crazy like that. And he started hitting. Uh, and his numbers up to that point in the season were really bad, not up to his career norms. And he starts hitting. And he mentioned that, just seeing pitches every day and getting four at-bats a day can make a difference. So maybe that's something that happened there with Avila. And maybe as they move forward, there will find some more opportunities for him. We've seen certainly behind the plate, he, he more than holds his own. He had a great defensive series. Not that Gomes has been bad there. He's been one of the best in baseball. But maybe, yeah, maybe it's time to start thinking about you know a little more even playing time between the two. Just because you can't afford for Gomes to have that uh, hamstring turn into something more long-term. I mean, I think the hope is that he's ready to go Tuesday in Tampa. But uh, if you start, you know, asking him to catch five days in a row again, all of a sudden the hamstring blows out and you're going to lose him for a long time. It's funny to me with the Nats at catcher because they've not done a good job of developing catchers, but they've actually done a really nice job of acquiring veteran catchers in recent years. You think about Gomes, you think about Suzuki, you think about Alex Avila, you think about Jonathan Lucroy and his brief stint as the Nats catcher early this season. So whatever the reason, Rizzo's got an eye for acquiring veteran catchers who come here and actually do a halfway decent job. And Avila this weekend, want to give him credit, he did do a nice job in this series. But it does end up being another series loss for the Nats. They're not winning, they're losing. Uh, the Nats now are 24-32 and 32 on the season, have a run differential of minus 31, and the Nats now are 1-4-1 and one over their last six series. And the lone win in that stretch in terms of a series win was the three-game sweep of the Orioles. See, that's another thing about the Nats this season, not to make everyone feel even worse about things right now, but go back and look at who they've defeated. Like, the teams that have accounted for the Nationals' mere 24 wins on the season, a sweep of the Orioles, a sweep of the Miami Marlins, some wins over the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Nats aren't consistently beating good teams, and even when facing, you know, middling teams like the Phillies, like, I don't know about you, the, the Phillies were not impressive in this series. I, I don't look at the Phillies as like, oh my God, well, it was the Phillies. Like, no, Phillies aren't a very good team. To me, they're sloppy defensively. They don't overwhelm you offensively. They have some guys who can hit, that's true, but they're not great offensively. The pitching, I think, leaves a lot to be desired beyond Zach Wheeler, but the Nats lose two or three to the Phillies, and, you know, it's eight games below 500. Davies talked about how now it's go time. Uh, we're still waiting for the go time to begin here. I agree. I'm not impressed with the Phillies much at all. I, I wasn't that high on them going into the season, and certainly what we've seen from them so far doesn't suggest it. I mean, they're fans there. I know they're very fickle to begin with, but going into this weekend, they were already talking about sort of like we've been suggesting, is this team going to need to sell some of their parts over the summer? Everybody but Bryce Harper, who of course is unsellable with that contract right now. So no, I, I mean, it, it was there for the taking, and, and that's the problem is that the same thing that happened in the Braves series. You can say the Nats are in position to win these series. They're not getting like blown out. They're not at the end of these series. You aren't saying like, man, they don't belong on the same field as these guys. That's not happening. They are putting themselves in a position where you have one more good game 
you might take two out of three and you're feeling a lot better about yourselves. And then inevitably, in that one game they need to win, they find ways to lose. And that's a problem. I suppose you could say, okay, eventually some of these things are going to flip and maybe they'll have some better luck and all it would take is one or two things. But when that's happening every single night and we're now more than a third of the way through the season and we've said over and over, there's no white knight coming. There's no great prospect. There's nobody coming off the IL that's going to save the day for them. I don't know how they're going to turn these winnable games into actual wins without something really dramatic happening. You can always email us at the Nats Chat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Tom in Rockville wrote us off of something we talked about in the last installment. He said, guys, love the podcast. I listen every day. Thank you, Tom. He says, you can't trade Max because he's 112 strikeouts away from 3,000 career strikeouts. Why is no one talking about that? If he gets there, it will be one of the few highlights of the season. So this is what we've been reduced to talking about a career strikeouts milestone that Max Scherzer at some point will be getting to. And that's a great achievement when Max gets it. I get that. Uh, That is not a reason not to trade Max. And if that's one of the things we have to look forward to the rest of the season, we're all in trouble with this Nats team. You know, I'm not sure that the 3,000 strikeout milestone alone, it would be what uh, persuades the Nats not to trade Max Scherzer. But I think there's a larger point there. I've sort of brought this up a little bit, and we've been careful not to, you know, really harp on this at this point in the season. But even if this path for the season continues down this direction, and it's clear they're not going to win this year, and I know it's his last year of his contract, he is still right now, with all due respect to Ryan Zimmerman and Juan Soto, he really is the face of the franchise right now. He's going to be the first Hall of Famer to go in with a Nats cap on his plaque. He alone is reason to watch them every fifth day. No matter how bad the team is, no matter what happens in August and September, if Max Scherzer takes the mound, that's a reason to watch. And as we've also said, I think, you know, and again, let's see how the season plays out, but I think he is agreeable to returning next year, depending on what the state of the team is and where they're moving. And I think he'll take a pay cut and all that kind of stuff. So is whatever you would get in return for him, is it that much going to make a difference in your long-term ability to compend, to contend again, that it's worth it to get rid of a franchise icon when you may still have another year or two of him doing great things, setting milestones, finishing out his Hall of Fame career in your uniform? I think it's an interesting question, and I don't think it should be discounted. I don't think they need to be completely cold and calculated in this decision, and it's just about dumping a guy who's about to be a free agent to try to get a couple of prospects in return. Well, why couldn't you trade him and then re-sign him? I mean, that has happened You know, Max is a smart guy. He's a big sports fan. He understands that the Nats need to replenish their farm system. It's a compliment to him that his name is coming up already in trade talks, not an insult to him. He is a great pitcher. He has value. I mean, do you think there's no chance that you could do like the Aroldis Chapman thing where you trade him away and then re-sign him? It's not no chance. Of course, it can always happen, especially if you have a good relationship between the two. But, you know, you don't know. You don't know for sure. And let's say they trade him to... I don't know where, and he ends up maybe winning another World Series with a team that says, hey, you know, we'd like to bring you back for another year or two here and go for another title. And he says, well, all right, well, I like Washington, but maybe I kind of like it here now. I think you're running a big risk to do that. I I don't think you trade him with the idea of re-signing him. You hope maybe that can happen, but I think it is a risky thing. And you never know how those relationships between team and player go at that point. Once you trade him, I know you can say all the right things and Max is a smart guy and he gets it why they would do it. But, you know, there's still a little bit of pride there that may be hurt 
if he were to be traded. So I, I'm not trying to say it's it's a bad idea if it comes to it, but I don't think it's as simple as just saying you have to trade him, you have to get a couple prospects in return uh, because this team isn't going anywhere and they need a farm system. Yes, those are all true, but it may not quite be worth it, especially if you're not getting surefire prospects in return that you know are going to help you win in the next year or two. Yeah, well, we're getting closer to this truly becoming a topic. Like you said, though, we're not there yet. But their farm system is in dire straits, and I think they got to do all they can to replenish it. But we'll see. You know, hopefully it's not a conversation. Hopefully the Nats surge and uh, keeping Max Scherzer is 100% the way to go come late July. But uh, right now, it certainly does not feel that way. Well, no game for the Nats on Monday. They mercifully have an off day. Then comes a two-game series at the American League-leading Tampa Bay Rays. Not the American League East-leading Tampa Bay Rays. The American League-leading Tampa Bay Rays. Everyone on the planet thought this was going to be a step back season for the Rays. Everyone on the planet thought regression was coming for the Rays of their latest offseason maneuverings. And, you know, come on, this team's good, but is it really this good? You're going to make another charge toward the postseason off what we saw with the team winning the pennant last season. Here we are, third of the way into the year. The Rays are atop the American League. It's a two game series, Tuesday night, 7 10. John Lester to start, Wednesday night, 7 10. Patrick Corbin will start. I think it's going to be really interesting to see the Rays up close and personal, how they do what they do. A classic case of, you know, a whole greater than the sum of the parts. You got to be a real nerd to be able to name more than a few people on the Tampa Bay Rays. And yet this team, every year it feels like, is at or near the top of the division, making the postseason, doing things that you're not supposed to do with a payroll that is microscopic in relation to the likes of the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Dodgers. And yes, even the Nationals. I think there is something to be learned by every team in baseball from the Rays, and uh, we're going to get an up-close look at them over the next uh, couple of nights here starting Tuesday. Yeah, I'll be curious to see them in person. I remember actually watching them against the Nationals last year during the short season, and in a couple of those games, I wasn't all that impressed <laughs> with them. And there's a lot of, who's this guy? Oh, who's that guy? And then all of a sudden, at the end of the year, they have the best record in the league, and they go on to the World Series. I mean, credit to them. They figured out a, a method that works for them. To do it, we're going to see one of the better starting pitchers in the league in Tyler Glasnow on Tuesday. Get another pitcher the Pirates traded away, by the way, who was a failure for them and has blossomed with the Rays. That's going to be a tough challenge. I think if you're the Nationals, you're going to see Ryan Zimmerman in the lineup because they will have a DH. Maybe that leads to some length in the lineup and Starlin Castro won't have to hit fifth against Tyler Glasnow and maybe on Wednesday as well. They're going to need to hit. They're going to need to score runs and they are going to need... John Lester and Patrick Corbin to pitch well, because at the moment, that's their number two and three starters, believe it or not. That's scary. That's very scary. We will also see the Nats playing in maybe the single worst environment in baseball. The trop is horrendous. Nobody goes to the games. The environment stinks. And here's what captures this as much as anything. You know, most teams, not every team, but most team in baseball has a better home record as compared to the road record. The Rays are the exact opposite. 15 and 13 at home, 23 and 10 on the road. The Rays thank the baseball gods when a road trip comes up. Playing at home, not so much fun. We're going to see some really stale environments, I'm guessing, uh, during this two-game series. Uh, But we're also going to see a really good team in the Rays. So should be interesting. I will say, having been to both of them, I will say that the Trop is better than Marlins Park in terms of environment. Oh, you will. Now, I've never seen Marlins Park with a crowd of more than like 10,000. So if that ever were to happen, maybe it's different. But the Trop, as bad as it is, at least the quality of the baseball is good <laughs> at Marlins Park, not so much. Yeah, that expansion into Florida uh, has not worked out so well, even though the two teams have actually had some success. But uh, 
It has not been a, uh, a banner run in terms of attendance and ownership for those two franchises. All right. Well, another loss, another series loss for the Nationals. We want things to get better. We hope that things get better. But for now, the Nationals remain in a rut. You tell us what you think, what you want to see from the Nats, what you think could be coming from the Nats. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can always email the podcast as well. Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. We do appreciate everyone who continues to listen and download the podcast. If you could, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Also, uh, just leave like a brief one sentence review, especially on Apple Podcasts and uh, also a five star rating. Doing these things costs you nothing. It does help out uh, the podcast a lot. And tell your friends. Tell your friends. Absolutely. Spread the word, please. Uh, Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts remain available. You can get those by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Pitch to Turner. Called strike with a sinking fastball. It appears that some netting collapsed behind the plate. Yeah, the, the netting behind the plate collapsed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.